known Phil for a few years, I don't know, five plus, probably five plus years. We did some training together um, down in Brighton a few years ago in the same class for a, for a year or so. And um, what first impressed me about Phil was his brain. He's got an enormous brain, frighteningly huge. Um, but what has endeared me to him much more as the years have gone on is what I've come to realize is that his heart is actually considerably bigger than his brain. Um, so I just want us, you, you're going to get great teaching today. You're going to get sound stuff. You haven't got to worry about that. But you're going to get a lot more than that, okay? Because God's, God's burning in his heart. And so um, just be ready to, just be in faith that you're going to receive something from God, from someone whom God is at work in, okay? So it's all from him, but we're going to, but God's going to be a blessing, I believe, through what Phil brings today. So uh, Phil, very warm welcome. Lovely to have you. Okay. Thanks, Steph. It's great to be had. How you doing? Good to see you. Am I on? I think I'm on. There's a red light. Red light? I got a red light. If not, I'll shout and it will come through eventually. How you doing? Steph asked me if I would come uh, this afternoon and talk about uh, what it is that Christians do. What it is that Christians do when they try and share with people about Jesus uh, and really get up their nose. Do you know what I mean? I mean, if you're not a Christian, you'll understand this. In fact, if you're not a Christian, you'll probably think, what's this guy doing the talk for? I could come and talk for half an hour on what Christians do that really get up my nose. But most of us have been there, to be honest. Most of the people in the room would be people who a friend or a family member or someone shared what God had done in their life with them, basically, and not always in a good way. Let's put it that way. And when Steph said, would you come and share what it is that Christians often do when they try and share their faith that really annoys people, I thought, yeah, I can do that. And he said, slightly more tricky, he said, "Um, would you also come and help people to understand how they could share in a way that people wouldn't just put up with it and listen and humour them and nod and smile and hope you don't have to have this kind of conversation again, but would actually really want to listen, would really think, actually... I want to hear some of what God's done in your life. And I thought, yeah, I can probably do that as well. And that's basically all I want to do. And I don't think it's that difficult. In fact, I've called this afternoon's message Lessons from a 12-year-old because really they're quite simple, really. I'm not going to share massive um, breakthrough insights, really, but you might find them massive breakthrough insights just because they're really simple and you think, why didn't I think of that? And so what I'd like you to do, if you've got a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, it's going to go up on the screen, so it doesn't matter too much. In fact, I'll read it off the screen. I'm going to read you a story, uh, and this is something that happened in the life of Jesus when he's 12 years old. The Bible's funny. It gives you the whole kind of birth of Jesus story, all the way up to Jesus being about two years old, and then tells you nothing about what happened until he's 12. And then after this one event, which is really quite short, it tells you nothing about what happens for another 18 years. So actually, these few verses are all we know about what Jesus did from the age of two to the age of 30. So what I'm guessing is that these verses are quite important. What I'm guessing is that Luke thought, okay, 28 years and I've only got six verses. 
what's the kind of thing that people are going to need to hear in generation after generation after generation? I'll put that down. And this is what he put. So this is, uh, Jesus is 12. It's Passover, which is basically Easter time for Jews. Every year, Jesus' parents went up to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. After the feast was over, it's like a massive festival, like literally the population of Jerusalem would more than double for the feast. It's a massive celebration. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. This is bad. I took my niece uh, up to the aquarium, London Aquarium, a couple of weeks ago, and we're walking down the South Bank, looking at all the street performers, and I suddenly realised she wasn't with me, and I had not been aware of it. It is such a horrible feeling. For five minutes, I couldn't find my niece. It's frightening, okay? They couldn't find their son, Jesus, for two or three days. Here's what happens. Thinking he was in their company, they travelled on for a day. I mean, this is hard. You go to the police station. What's happened, madam? I've lost my son. When did it happen? I'm not sure. It was either two days ago or three days ago. We're just not sure. It's not good. This is what happens. Actually, I've got four kids. I can completely understand how this happened. Thinking he was in their company, they travelled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. And when they didn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. Let me just read that last paragraph. Jesus is 12 years old. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. You see, if, you, if you're not used to reading the Bible, I don't know, I guess we've got a mix here. Some people have been Christians for years, others, you've been dragged along by someone who's getting up your nose and you're thinking, I really hope that he says the stuff that's going to help them not to be so annoying. Some of you, you might not even have read the Bible much. And... Uh, the more you read, particularly the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, it's like the life story of Jesus. The more Jesus surprises you. But I've got to be honest, this is the passage in the whole of the four Gospels that surprises me the most about Jesus. See, here's the deal. Jesus created the universe. And Jesus came, he was born 5 BC, as a human baby. He'd been waiting a long time. And you know, there's only so much you can say when you're a baby. So he's been waiting for the moment when he could speak. You know, throughout thousands of years of BC history, he's had prophets who've spoken. Some of them have been good. Some of them have been less than good. Read the Old Testament, you'll discover. But this is the moment where Jesus can come in person and talk to the human race for the first time in person. It's his big moment. He's 12 years old. When you're a Jewish boy on your 13th birthday, it's your bar mitzvah. So this is just like a few weeks or months before Jesus comes of age. So he's obviously in Jerusalem thinking, this is my moment to share the gospel with people. I have been waiting for thousands of years. This is my moment. I mean, if I were Jesus, I'd really be going for it at this point. I mean, I would have had it all planned. I would probably have gone to the temple gates. They would probably have been shut. And I would have done some kind of miracle which would have made them swing open and the hallelujah chorus would have started up. 
It wouldn't have been written for, seven, for 1,750 years, but I'm God, don't forget, so I can just bring it back in time. There's no PA systems, but I would have had one installed miraculously. And as I walked through the gates as a 12-year-old boy, it would have been, hallelujah! And I would have walked in. Actually, I wouldn't have walked in. I'd have floated in. <laughs> and as I floated in and all eyes turned to me, I would have said, stop your talking. You know you've been talking about the Messiah? It's me! You know you've been worshipping God, wishing you could find out a bit more about him. Guess what? I've come! Which is why this is a really weird story. Because here's Jesus with his first opportunity to share the good news with people face to face as a man. And he's sitting there, talking to them, asking them a few questions, and they're amazed by his answers. It's a bit of an anticlimax, isn't it? So I want to help you to understand, well, why is he doing that? If you're not a Christian, I want to help you to understand that when Christians get up your nose, it's not because of Jesus, it's just because we can be a bit stupid sometimes. And if you're a Christian, I want to help you to be stupid a bit less often, really. I want to help you to understand why Jesus did what he did, because this isn't just like some weird coincidental story. This is Jesus showing us, how do you share your faith with someone? You want to bring someone to the carol service. There's there's like a pretty obvious rule, isn't there? If you've never talked to anyone about Jesus ever, it's really hard to invite them to church. Because it's a bit of a red herring. Where did that come from? But if you've had at least one or two conversations about spiritual stuff, it becomes a bit easier. Because they know that's part of who you are. And so if you're wanting to invite people to the carol services, you're, 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 you're wanting to start some kind of spiritual conversation. And actually, this message is going to stop you from mucking up. It's worth listening. I'm going to just bring out three things that Jesus did, which... He, no matter how you're going to share with people, you need to do these same three things. And I really hope that as we take communion in a bit and we just kind of respond to God, that you'll actually go home this afternoon thinking, actually, it seemed hard to do, I could do it. Or you'll go home thinking, I've never been very good at sharing Jesus with people. And you'll go home thinking, no, I was just going about it the wrong way. And actually, I'm, I'm the same as everyone. You know, when Jesus said, follow me, you'll be fishers of men, you know, he was meaning us all. I'm hoping that some will go home not feeling they're the exception to the rule, but just understanding it's, it's so easy. A 12-year-old can teach you how to do it. So first thing, after three days, they found him sitting in the, uh, in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers. Next one. Next slide. The more I read this story, the more I think Jesus must just love people. You think, why are you sitting there? Why aren't you doing a miracle? You know, like water into wine, feed the 5,000. I mean, there's, there's plenty of great miracles to choose from. You, there's nothing going to happen for another 18 years recorded in the Gospels. This is really a big moment, Jesus. Come on, do something impressive. And all he does is sit there. I'm just, I just have to come to the conclusion, Jesus really loves people. And one of the reasons why when we try and share our faith with people, and we rub them up the wrong way, it's because they sense that we want to share the message more than we want to love them. Sometimes we want to show that we've got all the answers more than we want to love them. And it's really interesting that Jesus should immediately sit with them. 
It's like Jesus told all these parables. Jesus was constantly surrounded by bad people. You know, sometimes people say, I, I, I don't have many non-Christian friends because I, I, you know, I, I want to follow Jesus. If you want to follow Jesus, you'll be surrounded by non-Christian friends. What are you talking about? The Pharisees, the religious people, came to Jesus and they said, you know, what are you doing, all these, all these dodgy people around you? And he started telling stories. So he told one story, he said, uh, this is in Luke chapter 15, he told a series of stories. He said, the kingdom of God is like, it's like a shepherd who's counting his sheep. He's got a hundred sheep and it's, it's night time, so he counts them back into the sheepfold or the barn or wherever he keeps them overnight. And he's just counting his hundred sheep, it's like 97 98, I don't know, how do, how do shepherds talk? Probably West Country, I reckon. 97, 98, 90, 99. He realises one of them's missing. That is the worst West Country accent in history. I'm going to ditch the American and the Indian accents later. It's not my accent day. And Jesus said, the kingdom of God is like a shepherd who realises he's lost one and leaves 99 in the open field to go looking for the one. And it's weird. People read these stories, like religious people read these stories and they say, oh, isn't it a lovely parable? No, it's not. It's stupid. What shepherd would have lost one sheep and so I'll leave the 99 in the open country to go and get the one? It's ridiculous. It's like going to the bank with £1,000, which would be a nice thing, wouldn't it? You go into the bank with £1,000, £110 notes, and you count them out on the counter and you realise you've only got £990. You must have dropped £10 in the street outside. She so says, OK, we're in Camden. It's going to be safe around here. I'll leave the 990 on the counter. I'll just go and look for the 10 quid note. It's just ridiculous. And Jesus says, yes, it is. That's how much I love people. And then he tells this other parable. He says it's like a woman who, she has £10, £10 coins, and she loses one of them. And uh, she says, I've only got £9. I want to find my extra pound. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to do the housework. It's good. If it was a guy, he wouldn't have said that really. He would have said, well, you know, I've got nine left. <laughs> Never know. <laughs> nine lottery tickets, I might still make a profit. Anyway, she says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hoover the house, I'm going to clean the house, I'm going to turn all the lights on, I'm going to look everywhere for it. Cut a long story short, an hour and a half later, she finds the pound coin and she phones up all her friends and she says, you'll never guess what, come round my house for a party, it's amazing. I had ten pound coins this morning, I lost one of them, I did all the housework, it's been great, an hour and a half, I've cleaned the house from top to bottom and you'll never guess what, I don't have nine pounds anymore, I've got ten pound coins again. And her friends think, you what? That's the weakest reason for a party I've ever heard in my life. And Jesus, like religious people reading this, of course, yes. Yes, naturally. Of course you would all do that. And you think, no, you wouldn't. Jesus is trying to say, I love people that much. See, most people in London have been written off. If they haven't been written off by their parents, they've been written off by teachers. If they haven't been written off by teachers, they've been written off by their employers. If they haven't been written off by their employers, they've been written off by a girlfriend or a boyfriend or by an ex-husband or an ex-wife. And God says... I love people who've been written off so much that I just want to go and find them and sit with them and write them back in. See, that's the difference. Jesus loves people so much that he's actually less focused on getting the message across and more focused on being the message. He wants to sit with them. He'll tell them he's God, but he wants to sit with them. He wants to show them how much he loves them. I think that's half our problem. That's half our problem. I, I, I'm, I guess Steph asked me to share because I've made so many mistakes. Is that right, Steph? You thought, if I don't know many mistakes this guy hasn't made, so let's ask him to go and share. I've made all the mistakes in the book. When I, 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 I 
became a Christian when I was 19. I had this amazing experience of God and I was really horrible to spend time with afterwards because I saw everyone as a project. I just couldn't stop myself from sharing. I just found excuses to preach at people. I didn't really get very far. And then a few years on, I just discovered the gospel message of grace and how much God loves me and how I don't have to prove myself to him. I just need to enjoy him. And I started acting very differently towards people. And, you know, when I started showing people I loved them, before I started blabbing about all the great stuff I had to share, I found, like Jesus, people really started opening up. It's as simple as that. Dead simple. It's a lesson from a 12-year-old, really. And I found you can, you can completely muck up. Do you, want, do you want me to tell some of my stories of how I've been a complete idiot? Yeah, yeah okay, I'll tell one. So a uh, new guy moved in next door to us, Muslim guy with a family. And I thought, well, I'll invite some friends around for a movie. I'll invite him around for a movie. We'll sit together. We'll just spend some time together. I'll try and show him that I like him. So he came round, and I was in a bit of a hurry, so I went to Blockbusters, and I just picked up a DVD. It looked all right, but I didn't read the back. Okay. So my Muslim friend turned up. He was actually quite a devout Muslim friend turned up with another Muslim friend. So it's not just a Muslim friend's come round, but he's brought his Muslim friend round, and he's trying, they're both like trying to out-Muslim each other. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) And then the movie comes on. You know it kind of says, warning, contains some nudity, violence, and horror. That's the bit you need to read before you invite your Muslim (laughs) friend round. But it's not even that I can fast-forward it, because I've invited a whole load of other friends round, and they, they aren't Muslims, and they just think, Phil, you've been a bit weird. So I'm having to sit there with these two devout Muslims who are trying to out-Muslim each other and the stuff that no Muslim I should see going on on my TV screen. So I went around the following day, and uh, my wife had been laughing at me. And I went around, and I just said, listen, I'm really, really sorry about the DVD. I had absolutely no idea it was going to be quite like that. And uh, he said to me, oh, don't worry about it. You know, we all make mistakes when we go to Blockbusters. Tell me one thing, though. All your friends were drinking beer and you weren't. Why not? Do you not drink beer? I said, no, I I can't pretend to you. I do drink beer, but you are my guest and you are around my house. And I just thought, for your sake, I I wouldn't drink beer. You know, you don't drink beer, so I wanted to be, you know, wanted to make it easy for you. And then we're into this long conversation about how touched he was that I would sacrifice beer to sit with him and be mates with him. Our friendship really took off from that moment. He forgot about the dodgy movie... And he remembered that I loved him enough not to drink beer. It's funny. When you love people, you can make all sorts of mistakes and they'll let you off. When you don't love people, you'll get nowhere. Here's the next, just this uh, picture. My dad used to say to me, Phil, nobody loves a smart Alec. (laughs) Did your dad ever used to say that? Maybe it was just me. Uh, No one loves a smart Alec. And that's what Christians so often come across as. It's like we want to show people that we've got all the answers and... Yeah, if you've experienced God, you do have answers for people. But not as many answers as Jesus did when he sat down and kept his mouth shut and showed them that he loved them. So if Jesus was smart enough to keep his mouth shut, it's probably not that smart for you not to keep your mouth shut sometimes. So here's what Bill Hybels writes in his book, Just Walk Across the Room. This usually launches me into a tirade I feel so strongly about it. 
I've been in situations when strangers are telling me their stories and they don't yet know I'm a Christian. A few of their pious remarks or haughty assumptions later, I shut down. They don't care about me. The only thing they care about is getting the roles nailed down. They're the ones with their act together and I'm the pitiable lost person, substandard in countless ways. There may be no quicker way to send an unbeliever to the hills than to play the piety card. If you want to permanently repulse a person from the things of God, try a little superiority on for size. It works every time. <laughs> See, now, if you're not a Christian, you didn't need me to read that quote because you know it. But the truth is, as Christians, we've discovered God, or rather God's laid hold of us and just helped us to discover him. You know, we've, we've, discovered, we've discovered the answer to the riddle of the universe. We've discovered the one who gives eternal life. We've discovered the one who's worth literally giving your life to follow. It's amazing. But you've got to understand, we find it really hard to share that. Because we're so full of it that it's really hard for us to communicate it without coming across like him. And the first lesson from a tribe, there's just three lessons. The first lesson is love people. Rein yourself in. It's like uh, one of the things that Paul says to the Corinthians in one of his letters. He says, he says I'm out of my mind for Christ but I'm in my right mind for you. That is what it means to be able to share your faith with people. You're out of your mind for Jesus. Just so excited you want to share him. But for the sake of the other person, you watch the way you share. Jesus was so crazy about his father. He wanted to tell people about God and lead them to salvation. But he reined himself in to sit with them, to love them, to build the kind of bridge that he could Share the gospel through instead of wading in with both fists. Listen, how many 12-year-olds do you think the teachers of the law in the temple listened to that year? Only one. If Jesus had waded in and tried to be all, look at me, even Jesus wouldn't have got a hearing. But because he sat there, loved them, they listened to him. Should we carry on? Second one. After three days, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Okay, next slide. Ask questions like Jesus. Let me just point out the the really weird thing here. Jesus knows everything. You know, sometimes your wife asks you a question, if you're married or your girlfriend or your boyfriend... Actually, it's usually your girlfriend or your wife, in fairness. They ask you a question, and you say, you know the answer to that. And they say, I know, but I'm asking anyway. Maybe it's just my wife. Maybe it's just in our house. Jesus knows everything. Why does he bother asking them any questions? Well, it's because questions make it really easy to start spiritual conversations. Have you noticed there's a profession? I don't want to offend you if this is your profession or if you're studying for it. As a profession called psychologist, which as far as I can tell, is someone who gets paid money to listen to people. It's a great job if you can get it. You basically listen to people and say, hmm, 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 tell me more about that. And then they pay you loads of money at the end. If you're a psychologist, you know I'm telling the truth. (laughs) Now here's the thing. People don't like being preached at, but people love being listened to. Jesus just begins by asking them loads of questions. James 1.19 says, um, You should be, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. 
Everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak. It's, it's just obvious, really, isn't it? Again, my mum used to say to me, you have two ears and one mouth. Use them in that proportion. <laughs> she doesn't talk like that. I don't know why I did that voice, really. <laughs> but it's not bad advice. Now, when I'm training people for Christianity Explored or Alpha, I say to them, listen, if you, if you want to help your guests, you've got to let them talk twice as much as you. Because here's how people come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's not just that someone comes in frothing at the mouth with these spiritual experiences they've had. It's that they're able to talk out their own opinions to the point where they realise they need answers. That's it. The main reason people don't commit their lives to Jesus Christ is not that no one wants to tell them about Jesus, it's that they don't think they need to hear about Jesus. And it's when you ask them questions, I just love asking people questions about spiritual things because people tie themselves up in knots you say to someone do you believe in God they say no and then you say how often do you pray and they say every day and you think well who are you praying to and they're not quite sure or you talk to someone and you, you say to them what, what do you think happens when you die and they say oh, I believe it's reincarnation you say who do you think Jesus was and they say I believe he's the son of God you think well he taught the opposite of that it's not until people have got what they believe out on the table that they suddenly realize I need to ask some questions myself. And uh, people love talking to you about what they believe. People hate being preached at, don't they? And so Jesus sits there and just asks questions. I'll tell you another thing questions do. Questions enable you to share something about Jesus in manageable chunks with people. No one likes to be lectured. When I became a Christian, I was so excited about Jesus that what I tried to do was basically corner people so that I could preach at them for 20 minutes. Uh, and I had the perfect job for it. I was part of a sales team, and uh, we travelled all around the country, and I would always offer to drive. I would pick them up. I had central locking. It was okay. <laughs> and then uh, I would have an hour's journey, and believe me, the conversation would turn to miraculously to spiritual things very early on. By the time I was in third gear, I was telling them about Jesus. But I noticed people started taking the train rather than getting a lift with me. Because no one wants to be your preaching target. But when you ask people questions, they love it. People love to have someone process, help them process what they believe. They really do. I took my son to a kid's party the other day. He's only four. Um, I took him to a kid's party the other day and they had an amazing chocolate cake at the party. It was quite nice, but not as nice as my son thought it was. So he had one slice and thought it was quite nice, went back for another slice and thought it was really nice, went back for a third slice, thought it was really nice, went for his fourth slice, I took him home, and all four slices came up on my living room carpet. <laughs> That's what happens when you share the gospel with someone, ramming it down their throat. They just get sick. If you think I'm being gross... All right, I've got a Bible verse for this one. <laughs> Proverbs 25, verse 16. If you find honey, eat just enough. Too much of it and you will vomit. There you go. <laughs> I've got the Bible verse for it. That's what we do. The gospel's sweet stuff, but I tell you, if you jam it down someone's throat, they ain't ever going to want a conversation with you again. And Jesus is thinking, no, I'm not the only person in God's plan. I'm the son of God, but there are other people that can talk about God. I'm going to take the pressure off. I, I don't have to convert everybody in an hour's conversation. 
he takes some of the pressure off and he asks them questions. Is that what you do? I mean, you know, if you're not a Christian, you may have been on the receiving end of somebody's 20-minute lecture. I'm really sorry. What they said was probably really good. The way they delivered it was probably really bad. And uh, we're, I guess the reason we're even doing this is we want to get better at it, really. Because um, a guy called Francis Schaeffer said, Give me an hour with a non-Christian and I will listen for the first 55 minutes. And then in the next five minutes I'll have something to say. We're basically trying to learn that. That Jesus didn't come to the teachers of the law with like some one-size-fits-all message which he just wanted them to shut up long enough to listen to. He came loving them and wanting to find out where they were coming from. I mean, I'm next... Could you just put up the picture? I'm, I'm old enough to remember when the Channel Tunnel was, was built. I'm not even going to do a French accent. I think the photo's bad enough. <laughs> The Channel Tunnel was built in, a, in what, for the 1980s, was state-of-the-art technology. You've got to understand, I was playing on my ZX Spectrum at the time. And they were, they were digging uh, a, t- a tunnel under the channel, and they decided that they could, they could dig it in half the time if they set off from France and set off from England and met in the middle of the, o- in the, middle of the channel. There's an obvious problem. It would be dead easy to miss each other. It would just be a bit embarrassing, wouldn't it? You know, they set off really well and they missed. It was only by about a quarter of a mile, but a quarter of a mile is a long way when you're trying to meet. I think they must have had some, like, early GPS technology. Anyway, I still remember when the TV programmes were disrupted for the moment when the French tunnel met the English tunnel and there was great celebrations and the Englishmen came out with their cups of tea for the French people and the Frenchmen came out with bottles of champagne and it became obvious from day one which direction the Channel Tunnel traffic was going to flow. <laughs> Here's the thing. When you ask people questions, you discover everyone is digging tunnels towards God's. You've just got to find out which tunnels they're digging. You see, you'll chat with someone and actually they're afraid of spiritual things. You know, so I was chatting with someone recently. She was really scared of some uh, spiritual, uh, I don't know how to describe it, some spiritual presence had been in her house. And, uh, you know, when I heard that, I was able to help her with some of the gospel. But you know what, if, if I hadn't listened long enough, I would have taken a completely different angle and never have reached her. And the Bible's full of examples of people following Jesus' example and listening long enough to know where to do the digging. It's like in Acts 8.35, Philip is brought together with this Ethiopian civil servant. They've, they've only, it doesn't say how long they've got, but we're, it looks like it's minutes and hours hours at the absolute most and he's got to help this guy get from never even knowing who Jesus is to here's water why shan't I get baptized and it says in Acts 8 35 beginning at that very passage that the Ethiopian mentioned Philip told him about Jesus beginning at where he was you see it's like Paul in Acts 17 he goes to the city of Athens he must have been longing to go there for years it's like the the cultural capital of the Roman Empire, and he finally gets there, and instead of preaching, he basically does some sightseeing. He basically goes round, and I don't know, he probably visits the Acropolis, and, you know, goes to all the sites you're meant to see in Greece in the days when, you know, Greece had some money and things like that. <laughs> and it's funny, he gets up and he starts preaching, this is how he begins. He says, men of Athens, this is in Acts 17, 
I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this description, to an unknown God. Well, what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you now. What does he do? He spends enough time finding out where they're coming from to meet them with the gospel where they're coming from. See, the problem is not that people don't want to know about God, it's just that we're sharing it in a way that doesn't seem relevant to their lives. Everyone's asking spiritual questions, it's just you don't know which ones until you start asking questions. There's another proverb that doesn't involve vomit, which I'll read. And it says, um, The first to present his case seems right until another comes forward to question him. That's the thing. Most people don't realise that they even need answers until you question them. And as you question them, the gaps in their understanding come out and they start asking you questions. It's exactly what happened with Jesus. Next slide. After three days, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. That's funny, isn't it? See, when you start asking people questions, they start asking you questions. How many 12-year-olds did the teachers of the law in the temple question? None. Except for the one who loved them and sat with them and asked them the right questions and got them to the point where they started saying things like, man, this 12-year-old understands my questions even better than I do. That's the point you want to get to. So this Muslim guy that I completely blew it with the DVD, but somehow he was touched over the fact that, you know, I hadn't been drinking beer. I went back to his house a little while later, and uh, we're sitting at his kitchen table having a cup of tea, and um, we just got into conversation about Islam. It wasn't, it wasn't that we engineered it, he just said something, and I just thought, all right, let's just ask him a couple of questions about what he believes. And suddenly we're in some conversation, and you want to get to the point where the person's saying to you, I think you understand my questions better than I do. So I started saying to him, Ahmed, you're my most intelligent Muslim friend. He was. Um, you know, you're an educated guy. I've got a question about Islam that no one ever seems to be able to answer for me. He says, oh, yeah, yeah I'll help you. You see, everyone likes being asked for help. Nobody likes being told they need help. It's like Jesus even when he's talking to a Samaritan woman who's in desperate need of help, begins the conversation with, please, will you help me? Can I have some water, please? So I said to him, uh, you know, please answer this question. I, I've got this question about Islam. No one's been able to answer it for me. He said, okay, I'll try and answer it. What's your question? I said, why is it that intelligent people like yourself put up with the imams in the mosque when they tell you you can and can't read certain things. He said, what are you talking about? The imams never tell us that we can't read certain things. I said, well, that's not quite true because I've encouraged Muslims to read certain scriptures and uh, I've received death threats for doing so. Why, why, why do intelligent people like you put up with that? Uh, so he said, well, what, what kind of stuff? So I say, well, like the gospel, you know, the life of Jesus. You know, why, why would an intelligent person like you put up with being told you mustn't read it? He said, well, it's not that we mustn't read it. It's just that, um, um, it, it's just that um, those things have been changed over time. So I said, well, when was it changed? He said, well, it was changed before the time of Muhammad. 
Well, okay, then why does Muhammad in the Quran say more than once the word of God cannot be changed? And why does he say to people who read the Quran, if you have any questions, go to the people who had the book, the Bible, before you, and they will answer your questions. Makes no reference to the fact that those scriptures have been changed. He said, okay, well, it must have been afterwards. I said, well, that doesn't really make sense either, because just a few miles from me, we could go to the British Museum, and we'd find manuscripts of the Bible dating back to 300 AD, which is over 300 years before the time of Muhammad. And this is the point where he says, I don't know. You've obviously thought more about my religion than I have. Then he's open. So we start asking, I can ask him questions because he, he thinks I might have something worth saying to him. He thinks, uh, I, you know, I, uh, that I might have some answers that might help him. So I'm saying to him things like, have you ever read one of the Gospels? He said, no, I've never read one of the Gospels. So, so who do you think Jesus was? He's a prophet. Well, what does a prophet mean? Well, a prophet means a messenger from God. Well, what was his message? I don't know. Well, don't you think you ought to know? Yes, but I've never read any of the Gospels. The imams say I shouldn't. That's precisely my question. Isn't it possible that it's not the Bible that's been changed, it's that the Quran may not be right? Is it not possible that the imams, do you know what I'm doing? I'm not attacking Islam, I'm attacking the imams. Never attack. Don't attack a man's wife, don't attack a man's religion, but you can attack people that might be trying to hoodwink him. Don't you think it's possible that the imams might be wanting to hoodwink you? That they don't want you to read the gospel about the life of Jesus because it contradicts what they say and they're scared what you might discover. Don't you think it's possible that your devotion to Islam is not actually earning you a ticket to heaven, but because you've been fooled by people, even though you're an intelligent guy, you and your wife and your two daughters are actually headed for hell because someone has robbed you of a chance to read the gospel for yourself. Well, I went home thinking I'd blown it, obviously. You know, if you sit in your friend's live, you know, in his kitchen table and you say, do you think you, your wife and your two daughters might be going to hell? It's not good. <laughs> I remember going home and uh, I got on Facebook and I was like, sorry if I got a little bit carried away. You know, maybe we'll catch up again. And then the following morning I bumped into him in the driveway with a Pakistani elderly man. And he invited me over and he said, Phil, I want you to meet my dad. Dad, I want you to meet Phil. He's the nicest neighbour it's possible to have. <laughs> Hold on a minute. The night before, I'm sitting in his kitchen telling him that him and his wife and his two daughters might be going to hell and because it had a question mark at the end, I'm the nicest neighbour in the world. <laughs> That's what happens when you love people and when they know you love them. People don't care what you know until they know that you care. When they know you love them, when they know you're not a smart aleck, when they know that you just want to help them to decipher some of the spiritual questions they've got in their life, I tell you, you really start getting somewhere. So last slide. I really believe that our problem is that we think that we're preachers and God's called us to be tour guides. I'll tell you my testimony. My testimony, basically, is my brother became a Christian, and I hated him. And I hated his holier-than-thou attitude. I hated everything about him. I persecuted him. I made his life a misery. And after about a year, I admitted he was right, and I was wrong. Now, don't ever quote me on that. I'll deny it. You know, I just don't like saying that my brother's right and I'm wrong. 
I've never heard anybody get baptized and their story is, oh, I had a friend and I suddenly realized they were right and I was wrong. No one tells their story that way. What they say is, I had a friend who helped me to think about what I believe. That's all we've got to do. Sit with people. Ask them questions. Help them to process some of what they believe. And as you help them process what they believe, let them ask you questions and guide them to the answer. See, nobody believes none of the gospel, do they? When you hear what people believe, there's some bits that you're able to say, that is so right, I really think you're onto something. There are other things that you'll say, now that's really interesting. I don't think I've heard anyone say that before. What makes you believe that? And as you ask them, you dis- they discover it was a documentary they saw or a magazine they read or just some weird idea that they kind of conjured up and even as they describe it, they think, I'm not really sure it's true. And then you challenge them with some truth to lead them on. One writer, I just really like this quote. He said, have you ever heard missionaries say they're going to take Jesus to a certain place? If you see yourself carrying God to places, it can be really exhausting. God is really heavy. (laughs) The issue isn't so much taking Jesus to people who don't have him, but going to a place and pointing out to the people there the creative life-giving God who's already present in their midst. Evangelism is therefore showing people the God whom they were experiencing all along but didn't understand. Mission's less about the transportation of God from one place to another and more about the identification of a God who's already there. It's almost as if being a really good missionary means having really good eyesight. Or maybe it means teaching people to use their eyes to see things that have always been there. They just didn't realise it. You see God where others don't. And then you point him out. Do you want to see people come to know Jesus? I mean, if you've experienced Jesus, if you haven't experienced Jesus, you're thinking, I'm glad people are hearing how to not annoy me quite so much. You've got to understand the reason we annoy you is because this stuff is so true. We are out of our mind for Jesus. We're just trying desperately to be in our right mind for you. But if you're a Christian, you've got to understand this stuff works. I chatted with my other neighbour, and I uh, just went around her house and we ended up getting into a chat and I don't know how it happened. She was like really into all this new age crystals and stuff. Had them hanging up all around her house and just in conversations she said, oh yeah, I had, I had an appearance of an angel when I was a little girl. What are you going to do with that? See, if you're a smart Alec, you'll say, no, you didn't. No, no, it's a deceptive spirit. Mm-hmm. If you're a smart Alec, you'll say, no, no, your experience of God is rubbish, but come to church with me because my experience of God is perfect. But if you've learned some lessons from a 12-year-old, you'll sit and you'll listen and you'll ask questions. You'll ask the kind of questions I asked when I said, um, that's really interesting. What, was, what did the angel look like? What did the angel do? What did the angel say? Did the angel say anything about Jesus? No, I don't think so. That's interesting because the Bible tells you what angels do. They, they bring messages from God to point you to Jesus. What did the angel say? I really can't remember what the angel said. Well, let me tell you what the angel probably said. He probably said something about Jesus if it was a real angel. Have you taken Jesus seriously at all? We're into a conversation now where she's interested because this is part of who she is. She comes on our forget saved a few months later. The other, we moved house, the other (laughs) neighbour, it's weird. She was going to come round our house for a Christmas party and didn't. She was ill. Her husband came round and it was a bit weird. 
I don't know why I said it really. Um, he came in, he said, I'm really sorry, um, Gaynor can't make it to your party, she's really ill, she gets ill quite a lot. And I said to her, oh, I'm really sorry to hear that, I pray for people to be healed in Jesus' name. If you ever want me to pray for her, I'd really love to pray for her. And then we started talking about football and neighbours stuff, and nothing else, didn't say I'm a Christian, we just talked about God healing, basically. And uh, I didn't discover her story until a couple of months later, but here's what happened. That night, that very night, she woke up about two in the morning, and her entire back garden was lit up. She said it was lit up like during the day. All of her solar-powered things in the flower beds had gone off. And she was like, this is a bit weird. My entire garden is lit up. And it was lit up by a star. See, I'm a white Western male, so this is where I think it gets a bit weird. She was Colombian, so to her this was just normal, of course. <laughs> she woke up her husband and said, Brian, I think God's trying to speak to us. I don't know why she kind of got that, but this star was lighting up her garden. She said, Brian, Brian, God's trying to speak to us. And anyone would have said at two in the morning, he said, Gaina, Gaina, go back to sleep. If you want to talk about religion, talk to the people next door. They're religious. <laughs> why? Because I'd said to him in a one-minute conversation, I could pray for your wife to be healed. So she goes back to bed, and about two and a half hours later, it's 4.30 in the morning, she wakes up, gets up. Her garden's still lit up by this giant star. So she wakes up Brian and says, Brian, Brian, I think God's trying to speak to us. And he says, call the people next door. I'm, just, I'm really glad she didn't. I I'm not religious at 4.30 in the morning at all. Anyone rings me that time of morning, I'm at my worst. She didn't. She waited two whole months and came round my house, and by the grace of God, I'd been reading Matthew 2 that morning where some wise men saw a star which pointed them to Jesus. So rather than being a cynical Brit, as I might have been, I said to her, oh, this is really exciting. God's, God's had track record with this. <laughs> God's spoken to people through stars before. Tell me about your experience. So she tells me about the experience. Out of that, she comes on an Alpha course. Actually, when she's on the Alpha Saturday, she has this open vision of God and gives her life to Jesus. And here's the thing, when we chatted afterwards, after she'd become a Christian, she said to me, I've never told you this, Phil, but my, my sister is a Jehovah's Witness. And I reflected on it, and I thought, actually, if God had given her this whole star thing a day earlier, she'd have phoned her sister. It was like God waited for a Christian to blow his or her cover around her so that she'd go to the right place to get answers. And the more I'm thinking about it, the more I'm convinced that to reach London for Jesus, it's not a case of us desperately, uh, you know, trying really hard to find non-Christians who want to listen. It's a case of us blowing our cover as Christians. It's like God's wanting to save so many people, but there just aren't enough of us sharing Jesus in the kind of way that we wouldn't muck it up when he does stuff or that people would even begin a conversation with us because they did that with us a few months ago and there's no way they're going back there again. So I just feel God wants to encourage us through three lessons from a 12-year-old. It's not that difficult. Sit with them, love them, love them. Ask them question after question after question and when they start asking questions back, share. Don't rubbish their story. Help them on their story. Help them to find Jesus as the destination in which their story is leading. It's what Jesus did as a 12-year-old. It's actually what the apostles did throughout the book of Acts. It's what the early Christians did when hundreds and thousands of people were getting saved. And do you know what? 
It's what very few Christians do today. Doesn't take much to reach the world for Jesus Christ. Love them, ask questions, share, let God do the rest. Do you think you could do that? Yeah. We've got two weeks before the carol service. Do you think you could do that? I'm not talking theory here. Do you think you could do that? Come on, let's do it. We're about to take communion in a moment. I'm going to hand back to Steph. It may be that you're you know, that, uh, not a Christian and you, you've been listening to this thinking, I wish everybody did this. It would be a bit nicer. Or you might even be thinking, it's a bit weird. They're talking about how to share the gospel with me. It's not weird. If this is life and death, it would be weird for us not to talk about how to share it with you. If Jesus Christ came and gave his life for you, it'd be really weird for us to worship him and take communion and not think about how to share that message with you. And I love communion. And I really want you to love communion right now. Communion is when you eat bread to symbolise Jesus' flesh and you drink wine to symbolise Jesus' blood. And it's the most divisive thing that Christians do. It's the moment where people decide, am I in or am I out? And do you know what, this, this afternoon, you could take the bread and the wine as your way of saying to Jesus, I'm in. Yeah, some Christians have got up my nose, but I understand, Jesus, that wasn't you. Yeah, some of the way I've heard the message has just been downright stupid, but that doesn't make the message stupid. This is an opportunity for you, if you're not a Christian, to not just hear about how to share your faith, but to get a faith. To say to Jesus, you who loved people enough to sit with them, ask them questions, and ultimately, to die for them and me. I'm yours, Jesus. You've won me over. And I'm going to eat the bread and the wine to say to you this afternoon, I'm done with living for me. I want to live from now on for you. Let me hand back to Steph. Thanks.